Hi there, everyone, and welcome back to another installment of Investing Transformed. As promised, I'm being completely selfish again and interviewing a a fellow I've known for uh, a very, very long time, long enough to know my darkest secret, Neil, that uh, I was a grumpy fund manager back in the day, and I've done the best I can over the course of the last 12 years to to get out of that, uh, that bad reputation I had back in the day. But Neil Azos is here with us today. Neil is one of the best former hedge fund salesmen that I knew back in the 2000s. He had and has a fabulous research business called Rareview, Rareview Macro, but most importantly, he is the founder of Rareview Capital. And Neil, I'm going to not do what you do justice. So I'm going to let you dive in and explain to everyone exactly what you do with the multiple hats that you wear. Um, And again, everyone, uh, selfishly, just for full disclosure, I've known this man for for 25 years. If you hear the odd in-joke between us, I'm sorry that's going to happen. Neil, tell everybody what you do. Thanks, Paul, for that uh, quick introduction, and it's great to be here with you. Ironically, I did go back and look in the advent of the video world when we did our first interview together, and it actually was back in 2014. So we've been at this for quite some time, but we definitely have known each other longer. Uh, So we'll see if we can't uh, keep this going for quite some time. So thanks very much again for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. As you said, Rareview Capital is an independent SEC-registered investment advisor and ETF sponsor. And the best way to describe us is to figure out where do we fit in into the asset management world. And we believe that asset management can be grouped into three buckets. The first bucket being disrupting the existing distribution framework or, quote-unquote, the electronification of investing, such as a robo-advisor. The second budding about a bucket being commoditization and scale or passive management. So think of the world's largest asset managers. And then thirdly, specialization that requires expertise or active management. Uh, I want you to think of us, Paul, as fitting into that third bucket. That is that we specialize in non-traditional investment strategies. We deliver our portfolios to third-party asset management providers we create protective strategies that require derivative expertise. We have customized solutions as specific in the interest rate environment. And finally, we produce research, we do not consume it. And our products can be delivered or accessed in four ways. We're an ETF sponsor, so we have several ETFs. We do sub-advisory work for other investment advisors. We do model portfolios where we deliver those to people. And then finally, investors can open an account with us directly. Regarding my background, as you said, I'm the founder uh, uh, of Rareview Capital. I'm also the managing member uh, and chief investment officer. Uh, I head the firm's investment team. I oversee all the portfolio and risk management activities, and I serve as the portfolio manager to the various Rareview funds. Overall, I have about 25 years of experience in the financial markets. I've worked at marquee firms like Goldman Sachs, Donaldson, Lufkin, and Generate, and UBS Investment Bank. And I've worked alongside uh, some of the best minds in the industry that have pioneered products that we use every day in the capital markets. And as a result, I have a uh, multi-asset and global investing, uh, global macro investing background. And I guess the best way to think about me, Paul, is, is that you'll see throughout this conversation that I'm not a bull or a bear. I'm neither an inflationist or a deflationist. And I have no religion when it comes to contentious topics like gold or China. They're just another commodity or country to me. And ultimately, I'm agnostic to the region or an asset class or whether something is a cash or derivative instrument. 
And what that does is it allows me to be process driven and remove the human emotion. Got it. Now, mate, we're going to obviously we'll dive into a lot of process stuff and we'll have to talk about markets like, but let's take a big step back. And it's funny when you said we were talking this morning, taking swapping some notes about sort of what we would talk about broadly. And it started making me think and get reminisce about when you and I first met. And it was when I was, you know, when I was a, a young, a young fund manager doing macro in New York. Um, and back then, I was thinking this morning that back then, sort of the the era of the of sort of the the rock star salesperson within investment banking was was front and center. You and you were there, and it was yeah you know, with people we you know we know we know very very well. But I think that that era has gone away. And when I think about the era that you and I grew up in, one thing that was very, very clear back then was a clear path to become a successful investor. There was like you went through an effective training program, be that working on a derivative desk work like you and I were lucky enough to do, being a spot FX dealer where you got to learn bid offer spread and stuff like that. Um, Talk a little bit about you coming up through the business, learning those skill sets and how you're applying them to what you're doing today. Sure. Immediately when I think of the firms that I worked in or worked at and the people external of those firms that I surrounded myself, so either my contemporaries or senior professionals in the business, they all had a couple of things in common, which I think were character traits of you back then as well. The two main things is that they had a proprietary trading mindset and they were very good at risk management. So the firms that I'm talking about, when I think about where we grew up, we both started at Goldman Sachs, right? Very well known as the preeminent investment bank for taking risk. Donaldson and Lufkin and Generate, where I work next, fantastic merchant bank, specialized firm in high yield. They are what now is, were many parts of what Blackstone is today. Third, UBS Investment Bank, the O'Connor Group for Options, which was pretty much considered the pioneer of option trading down in the options pit. And then when you think of the other firms that we didn't work at, but we were surrounded ourselves with, which were Bankers Trust, AIG. These, we got to go back a long time to, you know, before all the mergers. But ultimately what we surrounded ourselves with were people who pioneered products every day in the capital markets, people who had a risk-seeking mindset, and people who were more upset about not making enough money than I'm worried about losing money. That training in itself is the best way that I would encapsulate how to grow up in the business. For me specifically, I was an original member of the credit derivative trading desk at Goldman Sachs. So it started with six people. I was the analyst. And then throughout my career, I I, I had transitioned to other areas, such as an internal hedge fund at a uh, Donaldson, Lufkin and Generate, and then at UBS in equity derivatives. And what that really ultimately did is, is I don't necessarily think about it from a resume or pedigree standpoint. I think about it in, in, in another sense. It helped me create this multi-asset global macro background. And, and importantly, what it did for, I think, folks like you and I is it gave us an appreciation to look at volatility in multiple dimensions. And, and that for a very long time, I, I think, was cutting edge. And having that ability to look at the forest, not just one individual tree or live in the tunnel that you worked in, just allowed us to have a more holistic work, uh, approach to investing. Yeah, and you know, it's funny. I, you know, 
you and I grew up in sort of macro macro environments, right? And you know, but you know, if you remember back to when we were at, at you know the likes of Goldman, the likes of Goldman and the like, you if you macro didn't mean single single name equity, right? So if you were a macro salesman, you might talk equity derivatives, right? You might talk indices, but you didn't do single stocks. And now, you know, I, I look at the world that we live in now, which again is very dominated by very dominated by equity in the negative interest rate world that we that we live in. But for me, you know, if you and I had been able to get our hands on sort of you know trading single equity and being involved in promoting ideas in single equity, it would have been a game changer. Because I think that today, I look at today, and, and again, the macro, the, the definition of macro, I think, has changed dramatically particularly in recent years with the rise of crypto and what that means to, to traditional metrics of, of macro. I look at what you do today in terms of that multi-asset approach, right? And I don't see people doing that well, right? And again, frankly, the reason I think I have a business and I've had a business for 10 years doing this stuff is because people don't do multi-asset and macro well. So talk a little bit about how your model sort of fits into sort of a multi-asset framework. I mean, is your competition in the space is it macro? Is it macro investors? Is it the you know the multi-asset group at J.P. Morgan and Schroders? Who are your competitors in your space? Sure. So one of the reasons I think that multi-asset investing or a multi-asset product specifically may not get the attention that it deserves uh, is that a it requires a certain expertise across a number of disciplines, and most people are singular focused in a discipline. Secondly, when you're investing in something, what you're really asking a portfolio manager to do or an asset allocator to do is to replace a certain percentage of their asset allocation. And in the case of multi-asset, you could be asking them to replace a significant portion of a traditional core portfolio. And A, that may take away from their job or the various responsibilities that they, that they have, or two, the allocation becomes very large that if something goes wrong, you don't have the diversification benefit that you feel when you hold a lot of different individual instruments. And so the advent of it is somewhat challenged in, in, by nature. That said, if it's done right or it's done with an approach that is universal across different asset classes, I think there are a, a number of effective solutions for that. So you asked, you know, how do we approach that? For us, when we think of multi-asset and what drives multi-asset broadly, we think of several things. The first one and the most important one, you can debate the weight of it, but interest rates tend to drive multi-asset predominantly. So an interest rate is, is, is a key factor for any of the 8 to 12 fixed income sectors domestically or globally, depending on how you look at it. And of course, depending on where you're at in an interest rate cycle, that could have positive or negative implications to the equity allocation that somebody holds. So in, in our case, we approach everything with, the, with an interest rate model, an interest rate process, and that's really at the nucleus of what determines our multi-asset approach. From there, we can build out into other variables. And I would just say the other two that are most important, at least to us, for the driver of returns for a strategy like that would be credit spreads and equity volatility. It's not necessarily fundamental valuations on, the, on, on, on any of that. It's really what environment are we in? Because you're trying to get 
if you're invested in 10 things, what you're really trying to do is get six or seven or eight of those right. And, and then you end up having a, a, a good period. Got it. But that, and that also naturally implies the risk management is important. It is vital in this part of it. It is absolutely vital. I mean, that speaks a little bit more to active management versus passive management. And, and in our view, we believe that active management, predominantly in fixed income, is a more optimal approach to generating returns. We don't philosophically agree with that on the equity side. On the equity side, unless you find a specialty product that's solving for something, generally speaking, passive investing has, a, has, has won historically. Got it. Can you elaborate a little bit on the interest rate model? And again, I don't know if model's the right word, but the interest, the interest, interest rate framework that you're applying, you know, not just to the individual products, but the investment process as a whole. Sure. So what's nice about the interest rate world, or I guess the starting point, Paul, is that it's the largest and most liquid and deep market in the world. And they have the most instruments to play with. What that allows you to do is, is that when you can make a series of calculated investments or calculated bets, you can almost digitally to a, the, the, the decimal place, recreate a scenario that you've envisioned. So just keeping it very generically, if you felt the Federal Reserve was going to raise an interest rate one, two, or three, or four times in the next three, nine, or 12 months, something along that, there are enough instruments and enough products out there that you can recreate that to capture or harvest the potential total return of those outcomes. It's much more difficult to do that in equities or certainly in commodities or, or credit. And so by having a model that gives you what we call or describe it as a probabilistic model that tells you what are the probabilities that this scenario or that scenario will occur. And you are just making a bet on a probability. So for example, if I told you the probability of, uh, of, of a coin flip is a 50-50 chance of being heads or tails, that's really the same thing as saying, I don't know. So why would you want to make that bet? However, if I told you that in advance that the probability was 80%, you want to take that bet over and over and over again. And then, of course, if you want to take the other side of that, you have the reason to do it because it's fully priced. So we, we've created this model that allows us to recreate scenarios, look at probabilistic outcomes, and make informed decisions based on that. Got it. Now, Matt, I often say that the um, you know the the hedge fund model slash asset model, asset management model is the stupidest business model on the planet because you can never tell people how good you are. So, with obviously with with that with the, with that in mind and with knowing that the prying eyes of SEC and Finra are, are surrounding us, talk a little bit about you know the current couple of products that you have, and more to the point, what are you trying what are you trying to achieve, or what are investors trying to achieve when they take them on board? Okay. So I'll give you our, our, our framework for why and how we create products, and then I'll give you the example of, or you know, I'll, I'll answer what you just said. So I think there's three seminal investment questions or issues of our time. Uh, the first one related to equities is how do you avoid a catastrophic stock market sell-off? And then how do you enhance the time to recovery to get back to break even? Uh, and that is, a, is particularly important if somebody is a baby boomer who's close to retirement, they just don't have the time to recover. Uh, the second seminal issue is how do you avoid the loss of your purchasing power 
uh, in today's case, because inflation is very elevated and potentially going higher, how do you make sure that you are keeping up with that? And then the third one is, is, is what we've been dealing with really for almost eight or nine years now is, is how to find income when interest rates are low. And so everything we do at Rareview Capital is around those three issues, how to avoid the catastrophic drawdown in the stock market, how to protect your purchasing power, and how to generate income. And in doing so, we think that you need to use specialized products or the latest generation of products that exist out there, Paul, uh, to be able to accomplish those goals that you're looking for. In the case of of this year, we have, uh, as you referenced, we have had great success on the income side, despite the bond market really having its probably one of its top five worst years in the last 50 years. And it's through a combination of things, which goes back to what we spoke about briefly a few minutes ago. One is we invest in underlying products that require specialty expertise. So in the case of these particular income strategies, we use closed-end funds. We use closed-end funds for a variety of reasons, but predominantly on a risk-adjusted yield basis, or what we term as RAY, R-A-Y, they perform uh, better than other asset classes or almost all income-oriented asset classes. We have introduced several methodologies in a white paper that demonstrate the, the importance of this product. And the idea being, in, in a nutshell, for in simplicity terms, is how much risk are you taking for the yield that you're getting now if it's much higher? And you want to find products in the non-traditional space that allow that to happen. That's the first reason. The second reason is, is that we were able to put ourselves in a position to have the right asset allocation in our multi-strategy framework. Uh, for example, we avoided uh, sectors in the bond market that were very sensitive to interest rates. So instead of that, we had more exposure to leveraged loans that tend to perform in floating rate environments or high yield bonds or emerging market debt or mortgages, and less so to corporate bonds or municipal securities that might have more interest rate sensitivity. And then thirdly, leveraging our background in derivatives and being able to look at volatility in multi-dimensions, we deploy a risk overlay process to all of our strategies. And this isn't a thumb in the air approach where we're trading tactically or doing things. What we're interested in is uh, we seek to protect against a cyclical adjustment in the asset price. We're not interested in the next 10 basis points of a bond going, yield going up or down or the stock market going up or down five or 7%. What we're interested in is, is being protected for a major change or what we would call uh, a medium-term trend change, meaning we're entering a new regime. And so that combination this year uh, in terms of our asset allocation, utilizing the right products, deploying a risk overlay has helped us outperform in a pretty meaningful way in the bond market. Got it. But with the just on the closed-end fund side of things, is the is the outperformance or the the additional yield enhancement generated because they historically traded discounts? And does that strategy sort of, is it less, obviously it's less effective, but it is, is it ineffectual if these things are trading at fair value? So I guess the way to describe it is, is that closed-end funds in general tend to outperform on a market cycle basis. So nobody knows what's going to happen in the next six months or nine months. But when you think of things in two to five-year time buckets, 
they tend to outperform for a variety of reasons. The first and the most important one is, is that inherently they're a closed product. And so they're always fully invested. So they avoid the concept that you miss the 10 best days of the year in your asset class. They're just always fully invested. That's an enormous difference. Just to give you a statistic on that, Paul, that if you miss the 10 best days in the stock market historically, your returns would be almost 50% lower on an annualized basis. So when you hire somebody and you ask them to, to say, I want you to pick the top and then pick the bottom, and they miss that, it's catastrophic. And so you need to be invested. And then, of course, you need to have products that allow you to you know, go down less, but hopefully participate more on the way back up. The second main reason that they tend to have good outperformance is that they use a very moderate amount of leverage. So for every $1 on average, they buy about $1.25 of the underlying asset. So by buying that extra quarter, uh, 25% of the underlying asset, it enhances the distribution yield as a result of that. And then finally, as you mentioned, buying a closed-end fund at a discount to its net asset value increases the yield. If you get to buy something at 90 cents on the dollar, but you're generating this yield, on a discounted basis, your yield is higher. And then when you add back in the leverage, the technical term is a discounted leveraged yield. It really enhances that. And then, of course, you can take it a step further, depending on the strategy. If you use tax-exempt securities, the after-tax distribution yield or the after-tax returns potentially can be enhanced even further. Those are all very important features. And then there's one one that doesn't get discussed enough, which I think is uh, worth mentioning. When you go into a, uh, the universe of closed-end funds, there's about 500 of them. It's a large universe. They've been around, believe it or not, since 1890. They're the oldest registered investment company out there. And what you find in there is, is that you can access specialty managers that you can't access at the traditional products you get off the shelf at the, at, at the larger banks. So if you are looking for a specialist in convertible arbitrage or healthcare or leverage loans, this environment has them and you can access them and get the benefits of their expertise. There's a premium for that because they tend to do better in their active management approach, which is why they've raised that money and created this pooled vehicle for you to invest in. Interesting. So, but if I look at those those three things you outlined, avoiding catastrophic risk, generating, uh, avoiding loss of purchasing power and generating income. When you look at one and three, obviously that's the great quandary. I'm going to make an assumption that your avoidance of catastrophic risk involves negative carry. It's a long, it's a long volatility strategy um, yes. with sort of a traditional negative carry profile. Yeah. There, there's an old saying in this business, it doesn't really matter what you think your opinion is or what the product is, you're making a choice of whether you want to be long volatility or short volatility. Uh, in, in our case, uh, the idea of picking up the pennies in front of the steamroller of being short volatility is not what we do. There are great people who do attempt to do that. Uh, but our, in our case, it's, it's really dictated by our investor base. Our investor base doesn't ask for that. So we don't do that. We are inherently long volatility in some form. What we try to do, though, is when we do that is just try to buy it at an inexpensive level. And if we're going to buy it or embed it inside of a product, we want the, the industry jargon would be convexity. We want the ability for it to be explosive on the upside if we're going to do that. And so there's always an element of that embedded into our products. Got it. And obviously, the second part, avoiding purchasing power losses, is clearly a euphemism for inflation. 
talk a little bit about A, the current inflation environment as you see it, and B, sort of the unconventional or less conventional ways that people should be, how they should be, how they should be hedging that inflation risk. Okay, sure. Okay, so I'm going to make this real simplistic for the lay person, all right? There are dozens, if not hundreds, of metrics that people look at to measure inflation or deflation. And then, of course, if you want to translate that into the eyes of how the Federal Reserve looks at it, because their mandate is price, one of their two mandates is price stability. So we just make it real simple. We break inflation into two buckets. One being, is it transitory? And two, is it sticky? And within each of those two buckets, we pick the two most important variables that tend to drive the narrative in each of those. Uh, And we call those the four corners of the current inflation puzzle. So on a transitory basis, this is very simple, you look at the mini energy crisis that is underway at the moment. Where are natural gas prices? Where are fertilizer prices? Where are crude oil prices? And then the second one being supply chains. The natural one that most people look at would be vehicles. And then in the investment community, they look at what drives the the, the manufacturing of vehicles, which would be the supply chains related to semiconductors, chips. They're pretty much in everything. And so just to keep it real simple on the transitory bucket, we just look at energy and we look at supply chains, Paul. And then on the other side, the kind that we tend to care more about, when I say care about, almost more afraid of, are the two main sticky kinds of inflation. One of them is just rent. How much is your landlord charging you? And is he going to charge you more? And two, wages. Is your boss giving you a raise? Those two, when we use the word sticky, those are much harder to reverse. In the case of the transitory, they're generally uh, uh, driven by supply and demand profiles. In the case of the sticky stuff, once somebody raises your rent or gives you a wage increase, they're not really going to reverse those anytime soon. The only way to reverse that is to kick you out of the house or to, uh, uh, to terminate your employment, and then they can bring that down. And as you know, in today's world, that's much harder. So what's happening at the moment is, is that all four of those corners of the inflation puzzle are increasing. Now, to be fair, they all increase at a different rate of change. And so we monitor the rate of change in each one of them. And we see if there's a reversal in any one of them that will be more permanent as opposed to that's just a head fake. And the way to do that is is to carefully watch the low frequency data on a monthly and a quarterly basis and not get caught up in, in, in the individual data point. Right. But again, the whole, the whole argument, I ha- the frustration I have with the, the whole inflation debate, Neil, is, is as follows, that, uh, you know, and, that, and this debate is wide ranging in terms of, you know, having the argument of, well, like Peter Thiel saying, well, you know, cryptocurrency tells you that we have inflation. We have inflation because asset prices are going up and the like. And none of these things matter in regards to, because the Federal Reserve looks at basically, well, looks at a slew of things, but, you know, but um, core PCE is the thing that he looked, that the, the Fed looks at primarily, right? And at the end of the day, that doesn't take into account asset inflation, right? So it's, you know, asset inflation, crypto, whatever it is, it's not relevant to a lot of these, to a lot of these debates. So when you think about inflation as a whole, one of the difficulties that people have had right now is that we've ripped up the textbook this time around, right? So I don't want to hear, for example, that markets are worried about inflation, right? 
when the US 10-year yield is still you know, below 1.6% and when, when equities in the United States are at record highs, when you have inflation at three-decade highs, I don't want to hear that people are scared about this stuff because there is a disconnect, you know, a textbook disconnection, let's put it that way, a textbook disconnect between what inflation is doing and how asset market have, has responded. Have yeah. responded to that. Talk a little bit about what that what that yeah. has done to the portfolio. You know, so, how that sort of how, how do you get your head around that? Okay, so I, I think I'm going to try to just unpack that a little bit, or maybe describe it a little bit different, or make it a little bit simpler. So obviously, Paul, anybody in the real world understands that the cost of avocados at the grocery store, or the cost of of bread, or the cost of college tuition, or healthcare has gone up dramatically. And, and this argument that the government index benchmark was called the Consumer Price Index or CPI, which has been hovering between, make it very wide, half a percent to 2% for as long as you and I have been in this business. Uh, that doesn't add up. And, and what's happened really is, is that when we started the quantitative easing era or the era of forward guidance by the Federal Reserve, or even what's called yield curve control, YCC. They have suppressed these interest rates for almost a decade now. And as a result of that, the real world outcomes versus those interest rates are at an, a historical wide divergence. And then the problem from an investment standpoint is the products that have been traditionally created to mitigate the loss of your purchasing power as a result of inflation are still tied to that government index, which has remained artificially low for a long time. So for example, you call up your financial advisor and you say, hey, I think inflation is running rampant. We need to protect things. I just don't feel as wealthy as I did before. Can we buy something? The default exercise is to buy an inflation-linked bond or what's called the Treasury Inflation Protected Security, a TIP, right? And that TIP is benchmarked to the CPI index. So if the CPI index never goes up, well, then how are you going to make money in the product, despite the fact that there's a supply chain bottleneck that's causing fertilizer prices to grow, uh, rise dramatically, which is then filtering into the price of bread or the price of any other farmed product, right? And so how do you reconcile that? So I think most people know that the benchmark or the CPI is very much geared or it's constructed, it's got flaws in it. So for example, depending on which metric you look at, rent makes up 20 to 40% of it. So if the government or the, the Biden administration, as a, in response to the pandemic, puts a moratorium on raising the rent price and you own a tip and the CPI index can't go up, well, then your financial advisor purchased the wrong product for you, right? That's being discovered now because nobody's actually had to deal with this for the last 20 years. Now they're being thrown in the fire. They're half to dealing with it. And the way you understand that is, is that you're going to wake up at the end of this year and you're going to see some of these products that get a lot of notoriety out there. They've raised a, 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 a tremendous amount of assets and you're going to realize that they're only up 1% on the year. And someone's going to call you and say, hey, we put 5% of our money in there and we made 1%. That's less than the nominal treasury bond. Why did I go into your product? That's coming, right? And so there will be a moment of truth or realization that you have to find a product or construct something 
that actually does that. And, and, and we, the way we approach that is, is yes, you have to give somebody what we would call that tip inflation rate just to participate, but you need to give them something on top of that to really make a dent in their purchasing power loss. So think about this. You've put 5% or 20%, doesn't matter, a very large weighting of your asset allocation into these things. But these things that the real world is moving at a much faster pace. So you need a return that's above that inflation rate. And so you need to find somebody in the specialty world that is able to deliver that return by being able to, A, navigate the contours of the Federal Reserve policy path and take advantage of the changeovers in the interest rate regimes from deflation to inflation, or at the beginning of a Fed hiking cycle and the end of a hiking cycle, and how you move from one regime to another. And so the products that we work on seek to give you that base rate of inflation, and then they seek to give you a return over that inflation rate by navigating the different regimes that we're in with the vast array of products that you can use. That's probably the latest generation of tools out there, and we expect people to more widely adopt them once they come to the recognition that buying a tip outright is for the birds. Got it. So, Matt, oil, is oil sort of a central theme for you within this? I mean, because, again, if you, you think about oil as an inflation hedge, I've been talking a lot recently about you know owning, say, five-year forward, deep out-of-the-money forward crude calls, they work on a slew of levels, tremendous inflation hedge. We've talked a lot about, about you know, the, the, the more structural inflation elements driven by the climate transition and the like. But when I think about inflation hedging in a non-traditional sense, for me, all paths go back to, go back to crude or, or, or commodities in general. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the role that, that you know, a particular sector like oil would play in, the, in your multi-asset framework? Yes. That's a, an intelligent question, Paul, and I appreciate you asking that, actually. Believe it or not, commodities, for me, have a special place in my heart. They are the most underappreciated asset class of the major asset classes. And ironically, they have the potential to produce the largest returns when invested correctly, uh, because when they trend, they trend better than any of the other asset classes. Uh, and also, there's a yield component associated with that which the non-professional investor doesn't always understand or appreciate. Uh, and then I'll explain how I translate that into inflation. The two big terms you hear when you think about commodities, which you can look up in Investopedia, is backwardation or contango. When a commodity is in backwardation and you have to roll your futures contract every month or every quarter, you get the benefit of selling it high and then buying it again lower for the next period. And if you do that 12 times in a row, you realize that you've captured the difference on 12 roll periods. And that actually is a, a yield in itself. So they should be embraced in general when they have positive roll yield. The opposite happens when they're in contango, that roll yield is negative and you want to stay away from that. But right now, if you look at like the major commodities or the commodity index, I think there's 18 uh, products inside the index. 17 of them probably are in, are in backwardation right now. So just you have to ask, start with the question, why wouldn't you want to have exposure to a space that has 95% of positive roll yield, and that roll yield is several, if not four or five times higher than the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield? So that should be your starting point. Re regarding which ones can help 
offset the loss of your purchasing power or help when you're in an inflationary environment. Uh, I, I would be remiss to say that that gold is not the answer, first of all. I have done extensive work on gold. You can read a lot about our writings on gold. And it's not that I'm negative on gold. There's just no example in the modern era where gold protects you from an inflationary environment. And, and so what you end up coming back to is, is the largest component of commodities, which makes up about 60% of all commodities, is energy. And within energy, the most liquid and largest component being crude oil. We term that here internally called the barrel. And, and the barrel, if you look at any historical study, tends to have the best impact towards offsetting the loss of purchasing power because it tends to perform the best during that. It just so happens to be right now, Paul, that, that the supply-demand story is as strong as it's ever been. Uh, we have, uh, which we should talk about in a minute because I think this is a very important topic, the world is trying to go green, right? We're trying to green the climate. And as you know, and you spent a lot of time on this in some of your other programs or channels that you've, you're working on, that exercise over the next 30 years or, or 40 years is a $150 trillion number, apparently. In the mindset now, we've sort of front-loaded some version of those trillions of dollars in the year 2020, 2021, and 2022. I don't know if that's $2 trillion, $5 trillion, or $15 trillion, but it's a lot of money. It's an immovable force. And when you're doing that and you shut off the spigot to new wells or drilling in certain areas that are considered uh, harmful to the environment. And these companies are scared based on how they've performed in past recessions. They don't want to put any money or CapEx into their business. The profile over the next, between now and 2025, is very favorable for the barrel uh, regarding supply and demand. And, and, and I think we're actually at a very acute point in the cycle where we had the potential to go over $100 a barrel, uh, we are well below the five-year average of inventories. But importantly, the slope of inventories against that five-year average is pointing down pretty steeply. Uh, and, and I think if you live in the United States or in Europe and you've just received your natural gas bill, it's, so, it's much larger than you think. Uh, and what's happening is, is anybody who can switch from natural gas to heating oil or crude oil that switch is ongoing, and it becomes a self-fulfilling uh, uh, circle where that means I need more crude oil, but we're not producing more. And so that acts as a, as, as a hedge. There's some issues, though, you should be aware of. It's easier said than done. In a hedge fund structure, if that's the wrapper you're investing in, you can have as much crude oil and, and commodity exposure as you'd like. What people don't understand, and this is, again, where expertise is required, in a registered investment company, Paul, so either an ETF and a traditional open-end mutual fund, a closed-end fund, or a unit investment trust, so the four products that make up the 1940 Investment Company Act, there are limitations on how much uh, uh, gains or income you can generate from commodity exposure. There is an augmentation to that. It's mechanical. It's a, you have to set up a whole other company off offshore, et cetera. Very few do this. And so just because you and I say we would like to have crude oil exposure, the wrapper in most cases doesn't allow you to have it. So you have to go get that through maybe individual equities, uh, 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 the big companies, ExxonMobil, Schlumberger, oil service, big oil service names. But you know what, Paul? You can't do that anymore because it's not part of ESG, <laughs> right? 
And so here comes the conundrum. Do you want to lose your, your purchasing power or are you want to be true to ESG? This is a very big challenge. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, crude oil has very big benefits to uh, uh, inflationary portfolios and are a very big complement to inflation-linked bonds in trying to fight off the current environment that we're in. And, and I'm very fond of that product, uh, uh, and I wish it was more accessible to the average person. Got it. So let's give you two. I'll give you two little anecdotes on that, mate. So uh, one is consensus by 2025 that we'll sell 30 million EVs. So roughly 40% of global sales will be EV. I think that number's way light. I think it's well north of 50%. But in 2025, you'll have 1.5 billion combustion engines on global roads, right, which still need oil, still need gas, still need in traditional infrastructure and cannot be electrified, right? The second one, which is by far my greatest sort of you know, little uh, uh, piece of trivia for the year, is the performance of British American tobacco between the year 2000 and 2016 at its highest, from the trough to, to the peak. Now, in the year 2000, as you're well aware, tobacco was uninvestable. It was divested from Calpers, right. Calsters, Harvard, every socially, every socially responsible vehicle on the planet in the year 2000 didn't hold tobacco stocks. What was the performance of BAT between over that 16-year period? It went up 21 times. Oh, my Lord. So outstripped the S&P by you know, 10% a year for, for, for 16, 16 years, compounding, right? right? Just because we don't like it doesn't mean it's not going to work well. That's right. I bet you, uh, without looking, I, I, I bet you if you uh, 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 run that same analysis, on other uh, merchants of death, such as firearms uh, or alcohol, uh, some of the results may be very similar to what you just described. And by the way, a lot of people made a lot of money in the municipal bond world on tobacco bond settlements uh, during that period too, even though they don't know it. But ESG is a real force, as you know, it probably makes up 30, if not on its way to 40% of all assets. And it's made the, the environment much more challenging. Uh, but for the people that are willing to invest in, in carbon or diesel or those kinds of things, they have had fantastic returns this year. That's, I guess, a philosophy that you, you know somebody has to decide whether they want to be a part of or not. Look, it's an unstoppable force. I mean, I, I'd recommend you, I did an interview with a guy by the name of Ewan Murray who runs, who runs Federated International Business. Um, and Ewan is a advocate. He is a leader in terms of using capital for change. We had a great conversation last week about you know every every bond being issued going forward should be a sustainability bond and this sort of stuff. A really fascinating conversation. So look, at the end of the day, this is here to stay, but it doesn't mean that there's not going to be remarkable opportunities along the way. And look, I mean, I have a, I have a real problem with forcing companies like Exxon, for example. You know, if Exxon does a sustainability bond, that's okay, but the equity is not okay because we do fossil fuels in that. So are we really cherry picking capital structures that severely? So, look, I mean, you know, like every part of the climate transition, I do think it's essential, but it's not going to be smooth, and there is going to be friction that we are going to witness for for you know probably for two decades as this as this transition goes on. And at the end of the day, the only winner, as far as I can see, financially, is volatility. Right. That that that. I mean, maybe we'll end on this topic. Uh, you know, we've been talking for a bit. 
You raise a good point about volatility. And just to give you some framework on that, uh, because that is something that that tends to keep me up at night and not very few and, and very few things from the investment side of, of, of the bit of the of the ledger tend to really keep me up at night. One of the reasons for that, Paul, is, is that I tend to operate in sort of a three to 12 month time horizon, meaning we're more intermediate based. I know from knowing you that you have uh, big picture views well beyond a year, if not five or 10 years out. And those views, uh, depending on the structure that you're investing in, uh, have proven correct for, for many decades. And so I, I have a, a large appreciation for that. I have never really wanted to think about something well beyond a year because for all we know, a pandemic could happen. Something could happen, right? Where you know we just can't handicap it. So I tend to just live in the sandbox that I'm comfortable in. But I got to tell you, over the last year, a couple of things have hit me, and they 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 really go right at the heart of the word you use, volatility. And let, let me explain that real quick because I think this is an important big picture topic to segue into. So, really, since 2010, or really after the Great Financial Crisis, starting with Chairman Ben Bernanke of the Federal Reserve, he created three policies in effect, and and I equate this to using a Lord of the Rings metaphor, the Shire, where the hobbits live, right? They don't have a care in the world. So the Federal Reserve basically said, I'm going to keep interest rates low. I'm going to buy some bonds. And I'm going to tell you if that ever changes well in advance so you can prepare for that. Meaning we don't want to be the central bank of volatility. And when you think about that, there was really just three guys that are, or three people. It's usually the chairman, the vice chairman, maybe the head of the New York Fed, and maybe the head of the research department in the San Francisco Fed. So three or four people tend to create this policy that they exported to every other central bank in the world for a decade. It was a very homogenous environment. They all went to the same college. They got the same degree. They read from the same Keynesian uh, playbook. Superset was the inflation target everywhere across yeah, the everywhere. globe, regardless, right. regardless of local conditions. Not sure where they came up with that in emerging markets, but fine. Uh, and so you basically got a chance to live in the Shire and be a hobbit, and you didn't have a care in the world if you owned a risky asset. Fast forward, and what's happened is we had a pandemic, and there is precedent for this, which was in World War II, uh, as well as the Great Depression in the 20s. The world went to war against the pandemic. And when you're in a wartime scenario, what tends to happen is, in the United States at least, you marry the U.S. Treasury with the Federal Reserve. We, we have a lot of terms at our firm. We call that the Feasury. And ultimately, what happened is, is we transferred monetary policy to fiscal policy. So depending on who you ask or what you read or the analysis, somewhere in the world, 15 to $25 trillion of new money was created during this last year and change, okay? And at the same time, as we referenced earlier, the greening of the planet has shown up and it's been front-loaded from a sentiment standpoint. So there's an X trillions of dollars on top of that 15 to $25 trillion. It doesn't matter what the exact dollar amount is. We can all agree that the laws of physics are being challenged by that. And nobody, uh, uh, unless they're not humble, is able to really try to attempt to say, I have an edge over those two immovable forces, climate and, and $20 trillion of money printing. But here's where it gets interesting, Paul, regarding your volatility comment. 
In the past, as I said, we pretty much had three or four central bankers in the Federal Reserve exporting their policy to the entire world. So if you were a fiscal politician, meaning in the U.S., you whether you were a senator or a congressperson or you worked at the administration, all the heavy lifting was done by the Federal Reserve. You didn't have to work for a living. You just got to leverage what they did and then build your policies off of that. Fast forward back to today, and what's happening is with fiscal policy, as we're seeing with uh, the Circus Act regarding the infrastructure bill and the Build America Back, et cetera, uh, plans, we now have, call it 500 people making policy decisions, all with their own agenda. And these are 500 politicians in both bodies of Congress, as with progressive, centrist, hard right, an administration. And now go replicate that to Europe, uh, which historically has been a more challenged democracy than the United States, if you will, regarding their politics, right? Because a lot of countries, so effectively we got all these, we've got thousands of people now in the kitchen making soup and trying to name a, an alphabet soup program, right? That wasn't the case for 10 years. So the net conclusion of that is, is that we've just moved from a homogenous environment to a heterogeneous environment, okay? I don't know what all that means, but that ingredient set tells me that volatility in general should reset higher across asset classes. And in that particular case, passive investing becomes more challenged. You need an active manager to help you navigate that. With respect to the active manager at the moment, being humbled by these immovable forces that are defying the laws of physics and trying to compete with the Circus Act in Washington, D.C. Those are some things that keep me up at night and, and make me think that volatility is really the wrong price. Uh, and we're going to find out if these forces overpower the monetary policy, because in the last several weeks, as you've probably watched, the forward guidance is being challenged like never before. And it's not necessarily that the Fed or, or other central banks don't have credibility. It's that the forces that are driving policy are no longer in their jurisdiction. And that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, and I, I'd word it slightly differently, and I compare sort of the, the decade before the pandemic and where we are today. The decade, I'm in awe of the previous decade because it showed the world at its how efficient the world could be. You had four, as you alluded to, you had four people globally set policy. Right, right. From, from from sorry, from from Draghi, whatever it takes to sure. the pandemic, there were four people who determined policy. Right, you had the optimization of supply chain, you had the optimization of balance sheet, you had the optimization of of cash through buybacks, you had this, you know, this incredibly, you know, this one of the longest and highest sharp ratio return periods in right. U.S. equity in ever in that in a five year in a five year period, and then. You have the pandemic, and it's the equivalent of throwing sand in the gears, right? And suddenly, you know, and you started to see precursors of that with the U.S.-China trade dispute and and sort of the slight disruptions you saw with the uh, with the the Chinese supply chain. But when you threw sand in the gears, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's a oil, whether it's a tanker trying to do a three point turn in the in the Suez Canal and blocking and blocking it for weeks, right? right? But suddenly, if you throw sand in the gears. You prove, and again, I'm a believer that inflation is not a monetary phenomenon, but if you throw sand in the gears, you create friction and disruption, and that creates, that's the thing that has created deflation, inflation we see today. And adding to what you just said, so when you've gone from four people creating policy 
to thousands of idiots running the asylum, <laughs> the global asylum, right? Couple that with we are ripping the rug out of, and rightly so, of yeah. a carbon-induced, of a carbon-driven society that needs to change. But let's be clear that we have a whole global system that runs on carbon, and change in that will not be will not be organic. It will not be smooth. It will be more sand in the gears. Um, and that's and I'm, I'm arguing your same point. That is that is periods of intense energy volatility. It's periods of potential interest rate volatility. It's probably eventually, even though we haven't seen it in a while, it's probably currency volatility. Right, but again, yes. if, you, if you if you rip the foundation, if you rip the if you rip the, the leg off the stool, right? Volatility is a natural consequence. I think so. So, I mean, so, mate, so just for, let's finish up on this. How does how does that framework sort of fit into what you do? Or more to the point, how does what you do fit into that framework? That's right. So, and and th- this is this is critical for everything that we do or everything that we're espousing to our investor base, the people we speak to. The traditional set of instruments or investments are out there are just the wrong tools for this job. You need to go out and find a specialist that can address these issues, uh, or sorry, address the investment issues, make sure they're in coordination with your goals, right? And then make sure you're navigating all of these changes on a regular basis. And so the instruments that we look to create are go at, directly at the heart of each of those. So as I've said, uh, I don't know if the stock market will go up or down by more than 5 or 10% at any given time. But what I do know is that if volatility increases and stays at a sustained level for an extended period of time, that the stock market will go down more than the garden variety type. And I want to be invested in a product that truncates that downside or at least cuts it in half, If you at least attempts to cut it in half. And then when the dust settles, create an opportunity to get back involved and cut my recovery time back to break even significantly shorter than what a traditional passive investment does. The technical term for that, Paul, is is you want to have a very high upside-downside capture ratio. And what is challenging about that is is that traditionally, you go to a financial advisor and you pay them 1% to try to do that for you, right? But you and I both know that we're not as smart as the stock market, right? That'll always take you out over time. And so what we've tried to do is remove the human emotion associated with that exercise uh, and, and, and create a systematic approach to an all-world equity product that attempts or seeks to do that. So that's the first one. We're going to go right at the direct part of addressing, avoiding the catastrophic loss in case volatility rises to a high degree. Uh, and it won't be perfect. Uh, but I think it will uh, attempt to be better than what we have now. And importantly, I go back to what I'm saying, it keeps you invested. And that way, you remove the part about not missing out on the 10 best days of the year or the cycle that really hurt you on the three to seven-year horizon, because that's what we're really talking about here is how to generate returns over the long term, okay? 
The, the second thing is, 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 again, I don't personally think, um, even with inflation, that interest rates can rise to the degree that you and I grew up on in the 90s or previously. Very simplistically speaking, there's a threshold. Once we go over that threshold on what that interest rate is, the servicing of our debt, which has gone from 18 trillion to 30 trillion and on its way to 35 trillion, you know, next year or so on, the math becomes much more challenging in paying that loan every year from the US government. And so that entitlement becomes larger than Social Security or Medicaid, right? It's the third entitlement effectively. And so I think there's a cap on where the government will allow it to, to, to be, which again will just disconnect you from the products that you think you own because the government is manufacturing what that rate really should be as opposed to the market discovery. And so I go back to, you have to find non-traditional sources of income, but you have to do it where they're on a risk-adjusted yield basis, meaning are you suitably being compensated for the extra risk you're taking? Well, I strongly recommend not to go buy a product off the shelf, very similar to if you have a heart issue, you don't go to a dentist, you go to a heart surgeon, right? So find a heart surgeon that specializes in income and they're doing it in a responsible way with a steady pair of hands at the wheel. Okay, to help generate that extra yield. And then thirdly, on the inflation front, if that's what it is, as again, just to repeat, at the, like I said at the onset, Paul, I don't have an inflation bias. I'm neither an inflationist nor a deflationist. We focus on protecting a portfolio or seeking to protect a portfolio from both inflation and deflation, right? That could change over any moment. We could wake up six months from now. The Fed raised interest rates. They induced a recession. The barrel drops. $25 and a supply chain of semiconductors finally became unclogged. And all of a sudden the world looks different than it does today on, on, on November 2nd, right? So of, of 2021. And so we want to make sure that we are creating products that, that could perform in both uh, to give you that seek structural protection against both deflation and inflation. And we have to do that in a more innovative way than the traditional instruments out there that, that are still benchmarked to government indices that are flawed. And so we're doing it in a way where it, it's, it's trying to produce a real-world outcome. Got it. Mate, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, thank you for asking. The easiest way to do that is just to go to www.rareviewcapital.com. That's R-A-R-E-V-I-E-W, capital.com. Our contact information is there. Please reach out to us. Uh, we, we, we enjoy conversation. Uh, and we want to be a trusted source for you. Good luck with all this, mate. This was a fantastic conversation, and uh, I'm I'm rooting for you. I think uh, the way you think about this is incredibly innovative. Good luck with all of this. Thanks very much, Paul. It's great to be with you and, and interviewing seven or eight years later again. <laughs> very good, mate.